Watkins. I want to say welcome, welcome, welcome to DrBoysTV.com, the home for intelligent black people. Now, um, I, I want to tell you all a little confession. Um, if I was to put together a super group uh, within hip hop, some of y'all that know me would know these things. Some of you are going to learn today. If I were to put together a super group of, of the best rappers, that, that, that the rap, my favorite rappers of all time, uh, that group would consist of, uh, of of four guys that I happen to know personally, which, which is a great honor to me. It would be Ice Cube, Killer Mike, D1, and Immortal Technique. That, oh, wow. If I could get those four guys together on one album, I'm going to be working for that for the rest of my life. It, it would be uh, those four guys. And, and I happen to have the honor of um, having this brother on the platform. And uh, so without further ado, uh, I hope everybody will give uh, this brother Big Black welcome. How you doing today, man? Well, thank you very much for having me on the show. I'm honored to be here, and we could just jump right into it. What, what, whatever you want to talk about, we could take the sisters' question, or if we already got that from the pre-recording, we can add that to the broadcast. It's up to you, brother. Okay, perfect. Well, uh, le okay, let's let's start then. Um, you, uh, you, um, let me just say this, everybody. You know, I talked to this brother on the phone. Uh, you and I only talked once, but uh, first of all, it was like talking to somebody I already knew. You know, and uh, I, I already you know seen your music and everything else, and and uh, anybody that listens to uh, your work knows, you know, that you're a deep thinker. You're not a shallow guy at all. And uh, but I can say, you know, the whole time we talk, just that whole stream of consciousness in terms of all the ideas, it seems that you're processing all the time. Uh, you know what I, what I thought about, man, is I, I said uh, he's he's so smart. But I wonder if if, if you go through the dilemma that, uh, that a lot of brilliant people go through, which is almost feeling like a tortured soul, that you notice all the things about the world that just are, are not quite right that are off balance you you notice all the things that that could go wrong right all the things you have to be aware of all the thing all the possibilities as well i don't know about you man but but sometimes that keeps me up at night uh, what, what do you say to that i think that um when you have rage that's internalized it could easily become depression that is a psychological mm -hmm. fact that's a, a fact of, of the mind, that if you don't get a place to express this outrage, because there is such thing as justifiable anger. You know, whenever you see a, a person who's an indigenous or African on television and they're angry about something, they're painted as irrational, as if they don't have every right to be furious at a system that's tried to whitewash their history as of recent, uh, at a system that tries to co-opt their struggle when it can't outright defeat it. Um, so I think that being uh, angry and expressive of these things or being pensive about them is perfectly natural, but I advise people to find an outlet that doesn't have to necessarily do with their work. You know what I mean? For some people, their outlet is different. Some people love to box, they love to work out. For some people, that's not their thing. They play video games, they relax, they meditate. Whatever it is that you can do to find an outlet for that. For me, when I'm not doing music, I write like actual stories, like uh, working on a novel of short stories. So I've been involved in uh, the creative aspect of everything that has to do with the game and also with the business side. So for me, I think it's less impactful when I see something overtly shocking because the premise of everything I do is to present not simply the argument that exists now, but the argument how it was in the past and the argument how it will exist in the future. For example, uh, slavery and racism is a testament to the cowardness of the United States. 
to the extreme cowardness of this country. For individuals that look up past empires, right? Rome, Greece, the caliphate, uh, the, the, the medieval kingdoms of Europe. When these people took slaves, they took slaves simply because they won the war. They didn't need to make up a bunch of legal excuses to own people, to say, oh, you're three fifths of a man, or you know, we're doing this just so we don't get sued later on in court. Right. The, the reality is that all the rest of these great empires said, we won, you lost, learn your place, and maybe you can work your way up. Whereas America did every single thing to dehumanize the people that they stole, the people that were trafficked as human beings, because they couldn't face that reality, because it is sort of a, a schizophrenic reaction to what they pretend to be in public. You know, you have a republic that's now traversed itself into empire. You have uh, two sides of this condition, which pretend to be at odds until it comes to foreign policy. And then you see that they're very much aligned in the same way when it comes to taxing people, when it comes to co-opting movements. The question for uh, people of color, African people, black people, indigenous people, um, easily relatable to what we talked about on the phone, the Marcus Garvey conundrum, where Marcus Garvey said, I'm a servant of the African people of Harlem, and I have a question for you. You know, Would you like to have a country of your own, go back to Africa, or try to live in peace with white folks? And he said, if you don't pick one of these things, you'll get the worst version of one of them that they'll decide for you. And to my knowledge, people never got a country of their, I mean, you can talk about Liberia, but to, to affect here in the United States, you never got a country of your own, right? Uh, it was segregation was turned into integration, as you've discussed on this show, primarily for the benefit of America's economy, not because they wanted black or brown people in their establishment. They wanted our dollars to be part of their establishment as the capital for capitalism, which African people being enslaved technically are. They are the capital for capitalism, which is why we began this discussion before we went live talking about reparations and how important that actually is to have in the conversation because whereas people see it as something that's undeserved, I would say that it's not only deserving, but necessary to rectify the wrong that was done when this government compensated human traffickers, the people who robbed, raped, and stole, the people who, 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 were, who made Jeffrey Epstein look like a choir boy. These individuals who were involved in this horrific business of dehumanizing people because they stole people, they didn't steal property, and they put them through a process of stealing their humanity and conditioning them for wickedness. And if people are interested and wonder if that's still going on now, well, they can look up a man named Martin Seligman, Dr. Martin Seligman. He invented uh, something called learned helplessness. And these are torture techniques that were used on Iraqis. They were used on Somalian people. They were used on Afghans. But specifically, they they were highlighted in the abuses that that uh, that happened at Abu Ghraib in uh, in Iraq. So I, I feel like when we talk about history, we talk about these these monumentous things that keep us up at night. We have to remember that they come in a cycle, you know. Whereas I called the album the Middle Passage that I'm working on, it's not because I just wish to commemorate the history that has been whitewashed. No, that's true. But I also want to tell people slavery may not be the past of humanity. It may be the future of what we're dealing with. 
And mm. for people who disagree, well, what happened when the country of Libya collapsed under one of the most liberal presidents in modern memory, Mr. Barack Obama, it turned into a slave market. Um, mm. When Mr. Bush uh, practiced regime change in all of these places, uh, in Afghanistan, in, 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 uh, <laughs> in Iraq, there was human trafficking automatically when all of this happened. You're talking about slavery. So in so many ways, I, I think that without injecting that into the conversation, without saying not, not only do you owe these people reparations, but you owe interest. And it will not come from the backs of uh, uh, blue collar Americans. It comes from the global financial institutions that made their bread and butter off of the backs of living people and then did everything to justify trying to remove their humanity so that there's no legal charge. Like if you look at middle, middle age Europe or medieval Europe's laws, um, Dr. Watkins, about rape or about murder, they're biblical. An eye for an eye. If a man is guilty of raping a woman, he would be gelded. For people who are watching the show who aren't familiar with that term, that means you take hot pincers and you remove a man's uh, a reproductive organs, root and stem. So if this was the punishment in Spain or in France or in England for the violation of a woman, well, then every single time they violated an African woman or an indigenous woman, they would have been subject to those penalties. Whereas referring to her as a non-human and creating her in this space where you change fundamentally law, right? God's law and human law to create this person as a, an object rather than a person, it indemnifies you, so to speak, from the human rights atrocities that you've committed. So in short order for the religious people that are watching your show, they made themselves God. And that's the reason mm. that Christ has abandoned them. Mm. Wow. Well, everybody who's watching, uh, speaking with uh, the great rapper Immortal Technique, and uh, if, as you come in, do me a favor, hit the thumbs up button, thumbs up, thumbs up, thumbs up. We're building Black-owned media so we can speak truth to power and talk about the things that matter for our community. And so I want to ask you a question, man. So um, today's February 1st, uh, Black History Month. Um, you know, for some of us, you know, we have a little extra pump in our step. You know, it's like, okay, it's not, now, now we got permission to talk about Black history. <laughs> I guess that's what it is, right? Um, black History Month means different things to different people. Uh, you know, for me, it means talking about black wealth. Uh, the wealth gap means talking about reparations. Uh, it means um, talking about the real black history in terms of what really has happened to our people around the world, you know, for the last several hundred years. What does Black History Month mean to you, if anything at all? Um, I came uh, for, for the background. So so your audience understands. I was born in El Hospital Militar de Lima in Peru. Um, and I came to live in the United States in 1981. Um, so I, I came to live in Harlem and Harlem embraced me. So I did what any other person would who was welcomed into someone's house when they embraced them. I looked at the pictures on the wall and I said, who is that? Who is this person? What are their contributions? Not just to uh, African-Americans, but people forget that African-Americans contributed to everything that has to do with the culture of the United States. There would be no culture in the United States, so to speak, without them. And I think that when you take it a step farther, and this is why Pan-Africanism is important to me, still 
in the slave trade, you recognize that only five to 7% of stolen Africans were brought to the United States. The other 90 odd some percent were brought to what people call Latin America. Um, I think that when I look at this, I wanna bring up stuff from the past, not just in recent memory. I think that everyone goes to uh, Malcolm X, Martin Luther King Jr. immediately. And I think that if we're gonna talk about uh, black wealth, for example, then maybe a good example to give some of your students would be to talk about the, the richest man who's ever lived in the world who made Bill Gates look like a pauper. And that was Mansa Musa, the great king of Mali. And the fact that I think what's even more important to discuss about him is not just his infinite wealth, but the fact that many historians believe that he may be responsible for kickstarting the Italian Renaissance, that he employed painters and artisans around the world, that when he made the Hajj, that he crashed the gold market in Egypt just by spending money on the strip, that he carried a, 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 what they call a, a porters or, or whatever it may be, like, like, like butlers with him, and they had long staffs, right? And on these staffs, it looked like it was gold, but the staff wasn't made out of gold. It was an iron bar they carried and there were gold coins with a hole in them that were put on the staff. And when the Egyptians realized, oh my God, this man, it, the people that are walking with, that's not a walking stick. The hundreds of people that are coming with him to, 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 to have a bloodless coup, so to speak, of your society. They're coming with Mansa Musa because he's bringing everything with him. Um, one more thing about him that's important to note. I want the people that watch your show to look at musical instruments in Europe before 1492 and to look at their music. What did it sound like? Gregorian chants of sort? What you hear is maybe a mixture between that and modern Renaissance music, someone like Henry Purcell in the 1600s. But when you look at the instruments, you can find out that one horrific thing about conquest is that the Europeans specifically burned thousands, thousands of African instruments. They did not mm. want them to be connected to that culture. And that's because music, right, teaches culture. Music teaches your history. And that when you look at West African societies, uh, when you look at indigenous societies in general, the spoken word is incredibly powerful. The person who retells that story inexact has to teach it exactly as it was. Now, obviously it's mixed in with a lot of spiritualism. People don't take it as a direct historical account. But then again, if you read uh, the Bible or the Quran, literally you're gonna fall into the same issues. If you're not already a believer in faith, there will be some things that are dogma that are hard to accept. But looking at it from that perspective, you see instruments that would normally look like what brass instruments in an orchestra look like now. But examine those West African instruments from the period of 1000 to 1492. And you'll find everything that you find in an orchestra now just in a different way. And I think when you relate it to the conquest of the Americas, so to speak, you'll find that they did the same thing with indigenous people. They burned all of their instruments. They burned their codexes. They wanted to separate them from their past because it's necessary to separate a person from their identity. So when I discuss something like Black History Month, to me, growing up in Harlem, 
every month was Black History Month. We had to learn about somebody new all the time because these are the people that changed the face of the world. You know, mm -hmm. when you look at an individual Black History Month, let's say Muhammad Ali, why is he so special? Not just because he was the heavyweight champion of the world, he was black, he stood up against racism. No, think about this example, Mr. Watkins, Dr. Watkins, excuse me. There were thousands and thousands of gladiators in Rome, right? But we only remember the name of one, Spartacus, right? There have been thousands of heavy, hundreds of heavyweight champions, and we only know a handful of them. And it's because Muhammad Ali was our Spartacus. If you think about the age of Vietnam, people, meaning white European Americans, could conscript brothers from the hood or from any walk of life, trailer park, white people, rich people, although they paid to get out of it because that's what happened. But they went to these individuals and said, you're a Marine. You're mm -hmm. in the army now. You know, the few, the proud, no, fuck that. We, we no signing college bonus. Get in that boat. We're going to Vietnam and you're going to kill some people. And this man, whether people think it's single-handedly or as part of a movement that followed him, he embarrassed the United States so much that they ended conscription, not solely because of him, but he was a huge part of that. And to end forcible conscription in the United States, something that's been going on since 1776 when these individuals think they invented freedom. But since 1776, up until his era, they could come to your home and say, you're going to fight in Korea. Let's go. You're, we're going to Spain. We're going to fight in Puerto Rico. Why? Who was Hitler to our people? Right? Mm. Some people say it was, it, was, uh, it was the king of Belgium who murdered 10 million Africans. Yeah. Right? Where's the galvanization for that? For the justice against that individual? Right? To grab every single person in this country, say, hey, man, this person is killing innocent people. In the we're, we're all going to go do that. Right? We fought all your wars. You fought none of ours. Just remember, mm. the great reward for serving this country is to be able to die in its wars. Right? Mm. That's the great honor they show Native American people, which isn't really an honor. Naming missiles and, and weapons of mass destruction that you use against children, Apache helicopters, Tomahawk missiles. But... Mm. It was the same with African-Americans. People were convinced that being a Buffalo soldier would lead to upward mobility, right? And that was even before World War II, still segregated units, segregated units in World War, in World War I and World War II. You know, you had to convince people that were living in a racist country to go fight other people to fight against white supremacy and fascism, mm. which is a conundrum because they're dealing with it and living with it here. So, mm. I mean... To me, I, I think there's no shortage of black history to tell. So whether you want to go to Muhammad Ali, the modern Spartacus, or whether you want to discuss someone like Mansa Musa, which is incredibly important, not just for the development of Africa, but really gave a leg up to middle-aged Europe when the artisan uh, community was in shambles and, and probably propped the Pope's uh, bankers up as well, people say. Mm. Well, you know, um, I'll tell you this. You know, it's um, one thing that's really that, that I'm curious about is I, as I'm listening to you break down uh, history and talk about the things that interest you so much. Uh, whatever, whenever I listen to somebody that, that's that's got some um, great things to say, it, like yourself, I always wonder about their 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 parents, right? And uh, and I know that you were born in Peru, from what I understand, and you uh, came to the U.S. You said in 1981, 
uh, as a result of the Civil War. And your father, your father had, had a military background, right? Uh, he's a colonel. Uh, tell us about your dad. My father, my father uh, came to the United States to study in Haverford in Philly um, and then returned to Peru uh, because Peru, like some other countries, has conscription that they say, hey, good morning. And you say, mm -hmm. good morning. Well, you're going to come to the army now. And they're like, well, I don't want to. No, you're not going to. You're going to go or you're going to get the hell out of here. It's wow. Korea, uh, uh, Israel, several other countries around the world practice this uh, ancient art of stealing people. But I think in Peru at the time, uh, my father had to take the equivalent of what Americans have here called the ASVAB test. And he scored very high. So they made him a full professor when he was young and he held that rank. But his purpose at the time was that uh, Peru was updating their weapon systems. They had recently had uh, two kind of skirmish wars in the past uh, 20, 30 years with Chile and then another like little secret war in the jungle, a few skirmishes with Ecuador over their border. So they wanted to modernize their weapon systems. But what they needed to do is teach the officer corps uh, how to use some of these systems. So they brought in people like my father, who was the youngest of the people there, and then other officers who uh, knew about science and taught them about basic physics, how to use some of the guidance systems, because they were really modernizing their, their technology at that particular period of time. And then, you know, once we moved here, the, the government fell completely into a, a, a right-wing fascist government led by dictator Alberto Fujimori. And it's interesting because people forget that concessions always have to be made, even during the dictatorship. So when Fujimori came to power in Peru, he had two major problems. He had a leftist revolution led by Maoist guerrillas who called themselves the Shining Path. And then he had drug traffickers who had a direct deal with the cartel of the United States. Remember, Peruvians, we let Colombians take all the blame for everything, right? You've always heard in the American lexicon, Colombian drug lord. You put him in a movie, he's a Colombian drug lord. Everyone says, oh, man. But what's funny, Dr. Watkins, is that Peru exports 30% more cocaine every year than Colombia. And we're more than happy to let Colombia take the blame. Plus, the Colombians have to go through Mexico. That was their thing, right? That, that's what they built Narcos, the series on. Whereas the Peruvian cartel always had a direct deal with the cartel of the United States. And when I say that, people say cartel of the United, what are you talking about? And I, mm. I tell the black and brown people, well, who do you think's running the show? Ricky and Bobby on your block? You think you, you think Pablo and Tay, Tay Rock from your block are, are, are running this whole thing? No, the, the cartel of the United States are people who have been in the drug game for decades and they have legitimate businesses. These are white collar criminals and they sell drugs legally as well as importing illegal substances. And I think that when people look at drugs and they say, oh, that's just the slush money that the CIA uses for secret operations. No, it's used, there's so much of it that it's used to prop up the national economy. Um, now they have legal drug sellers. Before it was illegal to have heroin. Now they'll prescribe it to you in a bottle. They have versions of it for you. That's why people call Big Pharma a cartel. But I think that it, it's, it's a little deeper than that. There are several cartels in this country that operate with their own agenda, that have their own political allegiances, that see 
uh, a certain political parties as a benefit to them specifically, or just know how to play the game, how to seesaw, how to move in between name, one and the other. Name, name some of those cartels. I'd be curious. What, what, what are some of the cartels that come to mind for you? Well, I think another one that's very, very big and important is media. Media is a cartel. That is something that is totally uh, 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 co-opted and taken over. Another one that people love to bring up is, and, and we would be remiss to not mention these people, this is the defense industry. These are the people that, you, you know how it took you two years for them to get you a mask, right? It took them two years to give you a free mask and, 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 and a test that may or may not fucking work, right? But it took them 12 hours to get all them weapons to the Ukraine, right? All, Republicans and Democrats signed off on that, which is why I have no problem criticizing both of these political parties after understanding their history, seeing the way that they manipulate people, um, it's evident to me that allegiance should not be given to any of these parties unless it's earned through some method of, you know, not pandering, but realistic as individuals in your community say, tangible things that they can actually say to people, no, we're not buying your loyalty. We're rewarding your sacrifices to this country. For every single other person, that's how they frame it. But when it comes to anybody, whether they're black or brown and non-white, it's as if you're giving us something that we're not owed, right? Mm -hmm. As if we don't belong at this school. The same way everyone looked at, you know, young black men and women at an Ivy League school and said, oh, they probably got in here through affirmative action. No, they got here because they worked hard. Meanwhile, your rich idiot friends had their mom and dad pay people like the the lady from Full House to get into the college. Yep. And that wasn't just some little scheme, that was nationwide. You know, it, it it goes to the very factor of saying, hey, listen, there's another cartel, the education mm -hmm. cartel, right? The oh your 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 education isn't valid unless we rubber stamp it. Oh, we can't possibly do courses online. That's not high class. That's just bullshit. Really? <laughs> All you Ivy League schools went online during COVID and we realized something. You could have gone online decades ago. You could have had your curriculum to the world, but you've decided to hoard knowledge. Mm. But what you're really hoarding is the degree because we can all get the knowledge from somewhere. You're hoarding the degree and you're hoarding the proximity to wealth. That's what mm. private schools are really for, ladies and gentlemen. You know your child can get an education anywhere. You could send them to a charter school. You could go to a very, very good public school. You could get private tutoring to go along with that, right? All of those things. The reason that people send their kids to private school and these elite colleges are not just for the education, but the proximity to wealth and the connections that they think they're going to get while they're there. Mm. Everybody who's watching, I'm speaking with uh, the one and only Immortal Technique. Uh, as you come in, please hit the thumbs up button, thumbs up, share, subscribe. And uh, and by the way, I want everybody to follow you on Instagram, brother. Uh, your your Instagram is uh, Tech Immortal, right? Is that right? Yes, sir. All right, cool. I'm going to put that on the screen. Uh, because, um, you know, I, I'm, I'm going to tell you, and I, I'd like to change the uh, direction a little bit and talk about uh, hip hop and, and kind of get your take on what you're seeing in the industry in terms of the music. You know, like, like I, I've had my opinion, you know, everybody here knows kind of how I feel. You know, I have, I have the, the hip hop I love. I grew up loving it. 
but then I have some stuff that disturbs me. Um, I see, you know, I, I don't know if you knew that in 2020, I think 200 rappers died in 2020. I don't know if you knew that or not. Mm-hmm. Um, but it was, um, yeah, and it, it, it's almost to the point where uh, without being overly preachy, I feel like it's important to us as grown ass men kind of just take that moment to point out the fact that there's something problematic about preaching death to a community. You, you're chanting death, you know, drug addiction, uh, killing your brother, you know, throwing away your money, uh, disrespecting your women. Just, you know what I'm talking about, all of that that comes with it. And I'd like to get your take as an artist and as a very good artist. If y'all have not heard his music, go look it up on Spotify. This brother is extraordinary. Uh, give me your take on what you're seeing in hip hop, the good, the bad, the ugly, and everything in between. Well, I think one thing that we have to note is that when it comes to all these deaths, which are incredibly tragic, I always see it linked back to the art form as a way to slight us as a people, to call us savage. Uh, but America was violent before rap. America was extremely violent, right? Before the blues, before jazz, before all the predecessors of what hip hop is, because people forget that hip hop is in that lineage. It may not get the respect that some of these other art forms do, and that's because there's no gatekeeper. And when I look at that, I can say, okay, here's the difference. If one of your fans, right, wanted to sing, and they were up against Whitney Houston in in her prime, we would be able to tell very clearly that someone sounds like an albatross and someone sounds like Whitney Houston. If Branford Marcellus came on stage and another fan of yours or mine got on stage and had never played an instrument before, they didn't even know the scales and they tried to play, it would be very obvious who was a professional and who was an amateur. But there's no gatekeeper now because now the person, right, that has been rapping for two days comes in and is judged on the same scale as someone like the god Rakim Allah, which is insane. But I think that goes to the fact that people really need to understand that. And I, I, I say this with all due respect, that when you give someone exposure, that's beautiful. Exposure is great. And giving them a spotlight to say, look, this person contributed. That's wonderful. Thank you. But ownership is better than exposure, than, than all of the things that I'm discussing now. And I feel like when I see the industry, um, the way it is now, uh, the way it exists, um, there needs to be more ownership by people. There's a lot of stars, but what I see is a lot of opportunities for people to take it to a place that they don't even think they can go. They have to remember, the artist has to remember, I'm speaking to them, that they are the product, that they are the most important thing involved, that they are the capital, that nothing runs without them. And whereas to how violent um, some of the music has gotten or or to speak, so to, to make the point whether or not a person is morally responsible for some of the things that they say. I think that's the difference in hip hop. When you go to uh, uh, an actor like Al Pacino, right? No one would ever go up to him and say, hey, Tony Montana, you know, you got 20 keys, you know, I'll give you some money. They would, they, Al Pacino would look at them like they were all smoking crack. I don't, I'm, not, 
I'm not a drug dealer, man. I played that on TV. I think that's the kind of nuance that rap doesn't get. Or maybe that some of the artists won't allow their fans to see. They need to be in character all the time. Whereas they think it's fake to play a character. But yet the industry sells this reality like the underground is some calm place where everybody raps about niceness. And the industry is where the real gangsters are. And the industry is where the real divas are. And the underground is where the real criminals are. And I think that whether or not people want to accept that, uh, it's just the reality. You go to any city, right? New York, St. Louis, Chicago, go where the underground dudes is rapping, go where the people are hungry. You're going to be in a place where if you ain't been invited, you're not welcome. And mm. I think that those kids make up the heart of it. I find it very difficult to criticize the, the younger generation uh, because as a formerly incarcerated youth, I feel like I want to give kids more leeway than people gave me. Um, I also taught in a prison. And I think the myth about missing fathers is a detriment to the community. I think when you talk about prison, you have to recognize the vast majority of people in there are not there because they're just missing a dad. It's because most of the people there are being raised by not their mother or their father. They're usually missing both parents. They're usually in a place in which they grew up around addiction or around abuse, you know? Individuals, yes, can be a product of their environment, but also the environment that's forced upon them as a child. These individuals didn't choose this life. I've never known someone that said, I want to live in the projects to prove that I'm tough, right? Mm. People don't live in the hood because you're tough, okay? Mm. Anyone watching this who ever grew up in the ghetto, that's you, your parents didn't choose that place to raise you as some some kind of decathlon in the ghetto to see if you could survive gunshots and stab wounds. You live in the ghetto because your parents are poor and probably because they were redlined by a racist system that didn't allow them to buy property. Forget that you had the money. See, that wasn't the problem back in the day. Plenty of black people had money. We don't want you here was the message, right? Now, the problem is when we look at things since we're talking about uh, Black History Month, we look at things like the civil rights movement. One of the sad things about the civil rights movement is that it showed a very, very clear divide in classism in every community because the end result being a lot of individuals who participated in that movement then during the 70s and 80s became this kind of self-appointed moral compass of the community to say, oh, well, this music is a detriment, right? Are uh, the Reverend Calvin Butts and C. Dolores Tucker, specifically people from the Christian community. Now, listen, I love the revolutionary Jesus, not the co-opted fake white Belgian hairdresser that they got on that paint. Right? But when I see C. Dolores Tucker and them, and I said, wow, this is not this is not representative of how an adult talks to a kid. You know, oh, you want to talk like a bunch of. And then they use the N-word with a hard E-R. And I'm like, but y'all calling y'all own kids that? That's crazy. Mm. How, how y'all talking to people? Then randomly, Farrakhan, he came to Harlem in the, in the early 90s. And, and I remember seeing him speak. And, and he said, you know, who was the first person to call the black woman a bitch? And everyone kind of looked around. And he said it, it was the white slave master because she wasn't considered a human being. And when she had children, they weren't called children. They said that she had a litter of pups. 
I had to look that up. It was so offensive for me to see that that, that was real. And it, it, it was true. So he said, and, and mind you, that doesn't mean you have to agree with everything that the Nation of Islam says. I, I personally would have my, I have debates in, with my brothers from there all the time about dogma, about uh, uh, historical aspects of, of the culture. But one thing that I could say was he was 100% right about that. That we have to be careful whose language we're using, how we're using it, and to always remember that we are part of the lineage. If you're in this culture, if you want to do poetry, music, hip hop, you are part of that lineage. You're part of those artists. At some point, if you are going to continue doing your craft, you are going to get noticed by people that do that professionally, and they will be forced to respect your talent because talent is undeniable, right? That's the other thing that we have to remember. The real yeah. know what the real is. You know what I mean? They're, yeah. they're, they're not going to give the crown to the island boys, right? But at the same time, we understand entertainment. We understand a, 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 a mockery when we see it. We know a vaudeville because it's been played plenty of times, right? There's an old saying in, in Harlem, you know what I mean? It says, Black people, we don't know who Boo Boo the Fool is but we all know who he's not. And that in a sense is, is descriptive of people that don't want to be lied to. We don't want to be made into a sucker. We want to honor the individuals that are actually putting in the work, that are actually getting stuff done. And it's not easy, you know, revolution isn't sexy. It's not something that just comes along. You know, one of my OGs who was Elder Brother Smitty, um, he was a member of the Black Panther Party, but he wasn't, uh, a regular member. He was part of their defense force, which was, was called the BLA, the Black Liberation Army. And for him, he reminded me as a, as a young man, he said, always remember, the Black Panthers were younger than you. And I'd be like, really? Sorry. He said, you know, how old are you now? I said, I'm 26. He goes, yeah, most of the kids that I was there to protect, because me and my friends, we came back from Vietnam, and we realized that the police we're fucking these kids up. And that the people from the neighborhood, when it couldn't be police, they would get people from these racist neighborhoods to come through and fuck them up. But once you ran into me and some of my friends and you got tuned up and we said, take the badge off, you're hiding behind your stripes. See, I, I'd never heard that phrase before. But when Smitty said that he told the cop that and the rest of the police looked at him and he said, Marine, you're hiding behind your stripes, come across the street. And he took mm -hmm. off his purple heart. And he took off his jacket. He went across the street. He fucked the sergeant up. But because they had both been in the core, he had to accept that. It was something that the brothers who were young and Black Panthers, they'd never seen that before. They can't imagine, wait, how did he catch the fair one? Because they understood that elder brother Smitty had caught bodies for a decade with no court date. And they realized, okay, I'm dealing with a warrior, right? Now, one other thing I learned as a young man is that you don't have to necessarily touch a battlefield to be a warrior, okay? If you're a young person watching this broadcast with myself and Dr. Watkins, I, he can make the, the, the best podcast, I can make the best lyrics in the world, but that won't physically heal a person. You becoming a doctor, listening to this channel, you can do that, you can become a part of that. You know, your battlefield is the hospital, your battlefield is against death and you're gonna lose that battle. But your job is to fight as hard as you can until the day in which your patient can no longer go, hey, 
I had the brother Mumia, who was accused of unjustly accused of murdering a police officer, even though several other people admitted to the crime. But when you become a lawyer, I can make a great song about this brother. But if you become a lawyer, ladies and gentlemen, my music can't physically bend the bars. You can get someone who doesn't belong in prison or shouldn't be facing those kind of mandatory minimums. You can physically get them out of jail. You can participate in the culture. You are the revolution in that sense. And that's what I learned from our elders growing up in Harlem. Mm, wow. Well, you know what, man? It, it, it's interesting, you know, when you were talking about, you know, um, the culture, the music, and you hit a lot of good points with that, um, particularly what you're talking about, like in terms of a warrior mentality. And, um, you know, one of the things that uh, I've always wondered about, about what happened with, with our music um, and I consider Harlem and New York in general to be a little bit different from other parts of the country. You know, I, I, got, I got a buddy um, uh, who's an artist out of New York called a Big Nard. And he, it is so funny because when I talk to him, he, he, he talks like you, he carries himself like you. I, I told him I was going to talk to you. He, lo he loves your work and everything. And he's writing a whole book and everything, right? And because he's a deep thinker, right? And I, I think that that's, and that's something I noticed just as a guy from the Midwest who saw hip hop from different parts of the country. I, I would see different uh, types of energy. And so one of the things that that I uh, one of the reasons why I brought up that whole issue in terms of what has happened to hip hop it, it, or rap music, whatever people want to call it, is, you know, it seems to me that there is such a, a magical power in great uh, in great music. You know, like like when you you know, when I heard uh, Point of No Return, I think that's the name of your song. I mean, it, it just spoke to my soul. It's like, okay, this, this is, this, this is, this is it, right? And it's like, it almost seems like somebody just said, okay, let's see if we can take, get black people to take this powerful gun called hip hop music and turn it on themselves, you know. Yeah. And I feel like that uh, didn't coincidentally just ha happen to happen around the time that Joe Biden and Bill Clinton started building all those prisons. And it suddenly, you know, you you know what I'm talking about. Like early mid '90s, the music just sort of changed, you know. And it, it wasn't like diversity, you know. Art art is diversity, where you have a, a multitude of experiences and and emotions, and and what maybe one day you're rapping about the club, maybe next minute you're rapping about anger, maybe next minute you're rapping about sadness, right? That's artistry to me, right? You're expressing the range of your humanity. But when every single song sounds alike. That that's not art anymore to me. That's almost uh, it's almost like a like a corporate uh, like a corporate product, right? You know it's what's funny? Oh, go, Sorry, go Scott, well, well, I would so I would love for you to address that because I know that you're not really, you know, you you're 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 not a uh, you're not in that hardcore capitalist category. That you're not a corporate guy, and and I'm wondering how you what you're seeing and and, and maybe message you, a message you could share with the artists without without necessarily being critical, right? Like, like encouraging them, go be great, but just understand the environment that you're operating in and how some other people around you, meaning entities and, and, and institutions like Apple Music, Spotify, record labels, don't necessarily want what's best for your community. And they don't want this music to be used in a way that's going to make our people better off in the end. I think um, when it comes to hip hop, I've had this conversation with several prominent executives and they were all black and i would i asked them the same question and they said well i don't understand how they removed all of us from the room 
in order to have these conversations about secretly destroying our people. They had a much more simple explanation. They said, listen, look at, look at movies right now. What is a romantic comedy? Boy gets girl, boy does something really stupid to lose girl, boy goes on a stupid quest and does embarrassing shit that is Diet Coke stalking, right? That's stalking, right? Stalk. Listen, if your daughter tells a person, Dr. Watkins, leave me the fuck alone, you lied to me, you cheated on me, I don't want you to ever bother me again, and this dude interrupts the wedding that you have paid $100,000 for, you're not leaving with her. We fucking you up, man. Like, you, <laughs> I blew $100,000. Like, if you continue, these stories that are told, it's the same cookie-cutter thing. I'm not saying that that's the excuse. I definitely have the same frame of mind that I believe that individuals wanted to influence hip-hop to go in another direction. I, I've seen that correlation. I've had those discussions. And I've definitely pushed back against those executives because I said that they're their tenure at some of these labels has changed the pr priority um, for many of them, in my mind, wherein it becomes, okay, I'm centered around this one megastar. And no matter what this person says, whether it's correct or whether it's wrong, we got to agree with them. We got to massage their ego as an artist. And many times artists aren't the most politically educated individual in the world. And a lot of times people have made this point before where in the Latino community, the black community, we love to put actors and artists as the representatives of who we are. And no one's saying that they shouldn't be. If people are qualified to have those discussions and what they say can be debated, reviewed, uh, conversed with among other people, so to speak, a peer review of the community, then that's fine. But then there are some individuals who really you know, have no sort of grasp of something much larger that exists in their community. And they'll just say, oh, well, you know, I don't agree with this or this is bad or, you know what I mean? Uh, you know, it, it, there's, no, there's no racism. The, the BLM, they're all Marxists. I, I laugh when I hear things like that because I say, I do not need liberal white people to come to the ghetto to convince me that half of y'all, this country is fucking racist. I don't need that. I never needed a liberal girl with pink hair to call me on the phone and tell me that I'm being oppressed. I, I look at the residential schools in Canada where they've done nothing about these children that were found murdered, right? I, I see this government preach God, but they've never, never gone after the Catholic church, which is a, a, a child trafficking organization that's disguised as a, a religious organization. If anyone else was doing it, right? They would go after that. But anyone else, if they were if there were mosques that were involved in this, oh man, we gotta investigate every mosque. We're not investigating every <laughs> church. We should be investigating every church. And if they did that now in the past 10 years, then imagine the buck breaking and the lunacy and the sickoness that was taking place during an era where people weren't even considered people. You know, mm -hmm. and, and the other part is that this country didn't become a, a democracy until 1967. And mm -hmm. when you, you look at the, the history of those decisions, they've never really been in the best interest of our people. And I think that's why reclaiming the art of the spoken word is so important. It's important because it shows people our lineage. It shows people that our struggle won't be forgotten. It shows people, hey, man, don't just learn about Nat Turner, 
learn, more, learn about uh, Gabriel Prozer and Denmark Vesey. Why? Why learn about all these people? Well, because they have so many similar things in common. Remember that people who were enslaved were only given what they call a slave Bible, right? Which is certain chapters of the Bible were removed because they were thought to be something that would promote revolution in the minds of African people. But when Gabriel Prozer, Denmark Vesey, and, and Nat Turner picked up the Bible, they said, no, I'm tired of reading this chapter of Leviticus over and over. I like this part in Exodus where he says, let my people go. Mm. And I think when we discuss uh, slavery as, as a more global concept, you can see the same thing repeated in the Arab slave trade during the Abbasid Caliphate. Mm. And for students of history that are watching this show that, that come to your show to get stuff like this, there's a, a wonderful book called The, Re the Revolt of the Zanj. Z-A-N-J, uh, which is the, the real uh, Arabic word for black. Um, some, some of them say abid, which is synonymous with slave, which is a racist terminology, the same way some people use mulatto without realizing how much of a racist terminology it is. But it was called the revolt of the Zanj. And it was because during the Arab slave trade, many of the East Africans, they converted to Islam. And they said, wait a minute, no, no, it says here in the Quran, you cannot enslave your brother. Now we have converted to Islam. How dare you say that you are Muslims because you're not. You enslave your own brothers and you only do this because you think that you are like the Greeks. You think that your skin is so light that you've become Greek, but you're not. You belong to this part of the world. A very convincing argument. And they set up a capital city about 13 miles away from Baghdad called Maktara. And they held out for a decade against the greatest empire that existed at that period of time. So it's important to learn about all of these specific things because it, and for the people that are interested, it's from Cornell University Press, uh, volume 36 of the histories of Al-Tabari. Wow. Well, you know what, man? Um, I have enjoyed uh, this conversation, brother. Uh, you know, I, I will say, uh, uh, I, I'd be curious. Uh, how'd you do in school? When you were in school, did, were you a were you uh, a I was terrible. Or were you I never showed up. I never did nothing. Listen, <laughs> I, 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 for, for the kids that are, that are frustrated out there, I, I was not a great student. Um, and also, I'm going to say something that it, it kind of hurts my heart to, to tell you this, but we had this conversation on the phone and, and we agreed. Um, I wasn't always a violent kid for the people watching this show. Um, but in the Black and Latino community in Harlem, in the 80s and 90s, it was sad, but it's true. If people knew you were smart, they thought you were soft. Mm. So a lot of times people equate being smart with being weak. And that's one of the biggest self-sabotages of our community. You should applaud your child. Listen, brother, if you're raising a daughter or a son who is smarter than you, humble mm. yourself because God has given you a gift. Allah has blessed you with something divine, right? How dare you be jealous of your child? How dare you be jealous of your son? If people are making fun of him because he's smart, it's because they can't understand his ideas. It's because they're jealous that he can see a pattern where other people just see a splatter on the wall because he sees a math equation, whereas other people just see gibberish. You should applaud that. So realistically speaking, I became a little bit more aggressive because every time I came home, I refused to hide the fact that I was smart and the people that I, I grew up with, the, the making cats from next door, they, we, they would love talking about 
the history of, of their country. And I would say, well, wait a minute. Jamaica was once controlled by Spanish slavers? And they would be like, yeah, it was. They're Spanish town. Oh, cool. So how the fuck y'all end up speaking Patois? How'd you end up speaking this, this Africanized version of English? And they said, well, they failed to overtake uh, the island of Hispaniola. And the dude who founded Pennsylvania, his father ain't want to go home empty-handed. So he attacked the weakest port in the Spanish main, which was Santiago de la Vega, which then became Port Royal. And I mm. thought about that and I said, hmm, so you mean to tell me if he had been successful, all the Dominicans would be speaking English and all mm. the Jamaicans would be speaking Spanish. Mm. That's how close we are. That's wow. how close we are as a people. And also, we didn't even have time to get into how fundamentally racist Latin American society can be. So that that that's for the next chapter. I would love to do this again with you, brother. But I, I think it's yeah. important to have these conversations because it brings the community closer. It makes people understand that we have more things in common than we do apart. And I'm not trying to put a Band-Aid on negativity or and definitely not uh, uh, the, the unabashed racism that I've seen for indigenous people and African people in Latin America. Uh, mm. I, I don't think that can be excused. And I think it's because it's in the name. It's a society built by Latin people from Europe who then co-opted whatever they could from the culture of African indigenous people that were enslaved within the confines of their empire. It's just, we always have to remember, God bless Haiti, because when Napoleon overtook the Spanish king, that weakened the framework of Latin America, right? And then Napoleon was set to move in, but his back was broken and his brother-in-law died in Haiti, fucking with the wrong people. And the rest is history, brother. <laughs> and I, I look forward to doing a, a little bit more about um, you know the African influence in Latin America, um, the idea that, for example, my grandfather was a Moor, so I think that's an important thing to talk about. Uh, and then hopefully next time, I, I didn't have a time to find high-res versions of these old documents, but the next time we do the show, I would love to bring them on and just give a, a, a scholastic approach to some of the, the audience that you have about how exactly uh, we're living in a remnant of that social caste system that Latin Americans invented for black and indigenous people. And even though it doesn't exist anymore as a relic, the remnant of that system can be seen in how people come to this country automatically thinking that, oh, at least I'm not, I'm above those Indian people. Oh, I, I, I might be right from stretch off the butt, but I'm at least I'm above these black people because that's what you've been lied to and told your entire life because of this flawed history that you've learned. If you think that Republicans banning books by black authors claiming that CRT is ruining minds is bad, well then just imagine people trying to hide your history and your contributions to a country that you built for the past 400 years. That We're not talking about the United States now. We're talking about every Latin American country that exists pretty much. And even the creation of, of, of Panama, and I'll end with that because I know we got to go, but the, the Grand Colombia was run by what they call peninsulares, white racist people who were descended from the nobility of Spain, right? The United States approached Grand Colombia and said, hey, we would like to build a canal through you. Grand Colombia said, no, 
We don't want to do that. They went to the northern part of Grand Colombia, where they had mostly Afro Latino people, right? And they said, hey, do you want to break off from Colombia? Do your own thing? Uh, and then we'll give you a country of your own. And they said, yeah, that'd be really cool. We're tired of living under these racist people. Okay, cool. Uh, I'm gonna need you to do me a favor though. We're gonna need to build a canal in your country. Mm. And they did so. And they fomented a rebellion. They took the country over. They said, hey, fuck you. And they turned the country into what we know as Panama today. And the reason that I bring this up is because whenever they do something for us, it's not for us, it's for them. It's just mm. branded that way, brother. And that's what we gotta live with, man. But hey, it's been an honor to be on the show. I look forward to coming back. Um, I, yeah. I, I definitely, I keep the ancient artwork in my house so I can study that period of time because I think it's important to note that while this was being made, right? That Europe was basically living in poverty and mm. they were being funded by the great Mansa Musa. So God mm. bless. There you go. Now, now, how was that for a Black History lesson? It's Black History Month. See, now, do y'all know? I hope if you did not know, now you know uh, why this this brother's a bad motherfucker. He, he's a bad. You, you are a bad motherfucker because you are you use the extraordinary power of of music to also be a teacher, and uh, and and uh, you teach in your music. You teach outside of the music. And this is this is leadership, everybody. It is um, the, even the fact that he mentioned the ferocious uh, having a ferocious um, desire to protect and to defend your right to be intelligent. Like you know, like no, you're not gonna play before punk just because I'm smarter than you. Like this, don't get mad because I'm smart. Like, kids, don't I, let know. nobody. I love kids, don't don't let nobody shame you. Don't yes. let nobody shame you into knowing the answer to a question. Because believe me, the most ruthless warriors, the most ruthless people, they were not idiots. They were smart men, okay? They were calculating people. And I, I, there's an old saying in show business that says that amateurs practice until they get it right. And professionals do it until they can't get it wrong. Mm -hmm. And I think having intelligence is one thing, but knowing how to apply it is another thing. And I guess that leads me to end with the story that I told you on the phone that I, I used to play chess and I was a chess champion when I was a kid. And my dad, one time when I got in trouble with the police, you know, he, he, he made this example to me. He said, you could play chess, can't you? He goes, all right, there's a guy that just came into my office. He got a double PhD and he's 24 years old. So he's used to being the smartest person in the room and he's from Bosnia. He said, but he can't play chess. And my dad said, could you beat him? And I said, dad, it's not a question of could I beat him? I said, how do you want me to beat him? You want me to let him win a few pieces and then wipe him off? Or you want me to like five move mate, three move, I I I'll take him out of here. And my dad looked at me and he got quiet and he said, see, that's how the police sees you. You could be smarter than them. You could have a much better SAT score than them. You could have gone to the best colleges in the world they know how to smell a liar. They do this every day. They know how to turn you against your witnesses. They know how to give you a soda so they can collect a DNA sample. They know to give you coffee so you get more nervous. They know how to make a person lie just so they can find out whatever lie is related to that. So when you look at individuals that are in this society, never discount 
somebody's intellect or somebody's wisdom simply because they're not in your field. You and I both know that a doctorate is simply a, a, an intelligence about a specific thing. Like people do their doctorate in like, what were the Roman soldiers wearing? Right. That doesn't mean that, you know, everything about Rome. You did your doctorate on what the soldiers were, wearing, what yep. kind of clothes, what kind of fashion designers were in Rome. Right. That, not everything about Rome. So I think that's the distinction that individuals need to make. Do, do, don't limit yourself in terms of what you can achieve. You know, what, the, the way you say to people, hey, man, the, the best thing to invest in is in yourself and to know the difference in between what your budget is to invest and what you can kind of play the casino with well i mm. would say when it comes to yourself it's time to be all in with that investment you know what mm. i mean whether it's your health whether it's your mental well-being as we saw the sister god rest her soul committed suicide the um beauty queen seemed to have everything everybody was on her, but we don't know how people are suffering inside so mm. make your mental health a priority check on the elders in your community oh and speaking of elders if anybody wants to help out. Um, I also run a charity in Harlem. We started doing that during the pandemic because there were too many elders in the community from the projects that were trying to go to the to the grocery store and it was a madhouse. So what we do mm -hmm. is we modeled our thing, the Rebel Army Runs, which is on Instagram, at Rebel Army Runs. Um, we modeled it after the Black Panther uh, free breakfast program, but we're not allowed to serve hot food because of the pandemic. So we put together a two week food pack of like oatmeal, canned milk, rice and beans, um, just a, a, a gang of stuff, soups. Uh, and we make it a two week food pack for the elders. And we're in front of grant projects tomorrow. Then we'll be doing the Isaac houses, um, Washington houses, and then back up to um, probably the Dykeman houses. But we serve the vast majority of the people that are there are black and Latino, but don't let it be fooled. They're Asian and white people that live in the projects and we don't discriminate whoever's elderly or if you come in there, single mom, or if you're a dude and you need to bring some groceries home to the fam, we do not discriminate. We do not ask you for ID cards. We don't ask you for any kind of VAX card, nothing. Come to us and we do whatever we can to help the people and that's what I believe revolution truly is. It's hard work. And I want to shout out the staff that I work with, my brother, Good Time Slim from Albany Projects and uh, the Dominican sister, Jean-Marie, that came uh, and supported us during this whole time. And they worked tirelessly along with myself and other people to give away. And now since we do it, I think it's 80, 75 or 82 week food packs every week. And we mm -hmm. out there like clockwork, brother. So. 10, if you want to see me, 10 a.m., 10.30, I'll be on Instagram tomorrow with my phone on the line taking care of everybody, man. That's what's up. <clears throat> so, everybody, you see it on the on the screen. Uh, so, everybody, give me a verbal confirmation in the chat. You guys know we don't just talk. We we follow up on, our, on what we say. So, give me a verbal confirmation in the chat. You will go to Instagram and you will follow Rebel Army Runs. Uh, this is very important work. He's not just talking about it. He's being about it. That's very, very important. So give me a yes in the chat. Uh, commit publicly right now that you are going to go follow Rebel Army Runs. And uh, and, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make a donation. So, brother, you just let me know where I can where I can PayPal. Oh, yeah. the, the, I, I link, um, sorry, the link is in the bio that I have okay. um, on my on my Instagram. That's, okay. where, that's where we put the link up. But okay. um, I think for me. 
you know, serving the community is one thing, but I think it's also humbling because you realize how many people, um, how many people are taking care of the youth, like in terms of the elders in the black and Latino community, how many of them rely on that. And that's the last thing I want to say to you. While we have this conversation about fathers and, and, uh, and people that are missing in the community, let's never discount the strength of a grandfather, not just a father. But I think it's important to talk about black and brown grandfathers. Who teaches the father how to be a father? Who says to the father, hey, you know what? One day you're going to hit this kid. And it's not because it's not going to be because of something he did wrong. It's because it's it's going to be because you lost the patience to do so, and you as an adult cannot come across infallible because you will raise your child to never examine their flaws. And it's important not to dwell on your flaws, but to say, "Hey, man, no, this is a problem, and I'm going to change this." Case in point: If you were in a restaurant and a waiter dropped some plates, and someone came out from the back like the manager and beat the shit out of him. That would be assault. If your kid drops some plates or breaks something in the house and you beat the crap out of him, he not gonna learn nothing. And I think that's the genius of the, of the black grandfather or the grandfather in general. You show a parent, hey, just because you made a mistake, that doesn't mean you're the worst person in the world. That means that you have to learn from these things and be able to build yourself into a better person. And whereas we always see that just being the father, in reality, most of the fathers, even if you're 30, 40, you're still a young man, right? right. We need that yeah. elder wisdom. And, and it's not incompatible with our people. Sure, some of the elders, they, they, they have their own very stubborn beliefs. That's fine. We're not asking them for their world perspective about every single thing in the world. But they were raised in an era of self-determination where nobody was coming to help them, right? Yeah where they had no friends, where it was like, man, we got to pull up ourselves up by the seat of our pants. Those are the people that really pulled themselves up by their bootstraps. Like if I thought it was crazy to grow up in Harlem in the 80s, I can't even imagine the people that grew up in Harlem in the 60s and 70s when the drug era was fully in, in tow, when heroin flooded the streets. Like I, I grew up in the aftermath of that. I would mm. see drug addicts literally mm. in, 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 in the train station. I, I, I learned, I knew what crack smelled like when I was a little, I was like, oh, what is that nasty smell? And my mom would be like, oh, close your face. Put a, 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 a fucking shawl over me. My, gra my, my grandma put a thing over my face. Like, don't smell that stuff. So you get to understand the human condition, right? You get to realize, oh man, it's an opioid epidemic when it's white folks, but it's a crack era when it's black and brown people. Nah, yeah. yo, nah, it, you, you you made drug addiction seem like a moral failing when it was us. Mm -hmm. And now that it's them, it's a medical condition. How about it was always a medical condition? How about those people that we call fiends that are on the corner? They're really addicts and they didn't choose that life. Most people that become addicted to something do so because of extremely traumatic events in their life. And I don't even want to begin to delve into the horrors that homeless kids grow up with because I have a few friends that grew up homeless and the stories they tell me are not nice ones and they are not the ones that you wanna hear. You are gonna need a shower afterwards. It's some horrible shit that people grow up in. So wow. I'm telling people, man, invest in yourself. Do not be afraid to be intelligent 
and do not let your kids be ashamed to be the beautiful, intelligent, black, brown kings and queens that they are. But remind them that achievement pales in comparison to maintenance. Anybody could win the title with a lucky punch. Who gonna defend the title for 10 times straight, right? Who's gonna stop conscription, right? We gotta be, we gotta be like Muhammad Ali. We gotta be like Spartacus. Bring it all down. There you go. And you have it from the, the Muhammad Ali of hip hop, uh, immortal technique. Every, every everybody, make sure you go follow. You know, I'm from Louisville, so so when you say oh. Muhammad Ali, that's that 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 means something to me, man. Uh, you know, I got get my family got a lot of stories about him. You know, my he went to high school with my grandmother, actually. And oh so, wow. Yeah, man. Yeah. So that's like right there. Like, you know, so I so I get it, brother. And I and I have a lot of respect for you. Um, come back whenever you want. Uh, we can finish. The, you know, we can have the rest of the conversation. Uh, all those Definitely. topics you mentioned, we, you know, like I said, I just like I told you before, I throw the ball across the plate and let you knock it out the park. And uh, it was awesome to have you here. So everybody, uh, give a digital thank you and round of applause for uh, our good brother, uh, Immortal Technique. If you haven't heard his music, you gotta go check it out. It, it, it will move you. It's extraordinarily good. You can follow him at Tech Immortal. Also, you can follow his charity at Rebel Army Runs right here on Instagram. So go, don't just don't just say you love him. Like go go support what he's doing. You know, make a donation. That you know, help out. I know we got people out there in Harlem. So step on out there and say hi. All right, guys. So God bless you. Everybody have a good night. Hit the thumbs up button, share, subscribe on your way out. And uh, thanks again, my brother. And uh, you guys have a good night. We'll see you soon. Thank you Peace. for having me on the show, Doctor Watkins. Look forward to coming back soon. Absolutely, brother. God bless you, man.